begin to open up God's Word. And then I'm going to move around a bit, but I'll explain it in a minute. Let's just pray. Father, we are so grateful this morning that you are a God who saves, that you're a God who is gracious to us, that you're a God who has revealed himself to us in his word. And we're grateful that we as a church have this great blessing of being able to participate in your work and declare your work. And Lord, I ask that's what we'll do this morning, that there will be a great sense in which we... Um, We'll display your love to one, uh, because of our love for one another and our love to you. We'll display that so much that those who are from outside, those who may not believe in Jesus this morning, may see your presence is here with us. We ask for this to happen this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I do need a bit of help this morning. I'm after a couple of volunteers. Um, ideally... A couple of people are interested in being up the front. Don't all jump up at once. I'm just going to make myself comfortable while a couple of people... Thanks, Caleb. I knew there would be one in the room. He doesn't even know what he's doing yet. Someone else? Anybody else? You, you can come down here, Caleb. Sorry. You can be central. Anybody else? This would be more fun if there's someone else. Not that I doubt Caleb's abilities. Oh, thanks, Darren. And Christoph, that's good. All right. We've um, got a task for these guys this morning. I'll try and explain it as best I can. We're thinking this morning a bit about the things that are necessary for building up and the tools that we have to do so. So we have three cups, one of which has water in it, Hopefully these guys won't make a mess, but they might have even seen this before. We have three cups. I'd like that cup to balance in between the two. It cannot touch the two cups. You have a piece of paper to work with. See how you go. You've got a piece of paper to work with. There are some engineers there, yes. We'll let, we'll let those guys work for a minute. Um, I recently had opportunity, well, the need to put together a trampoline and I was very grateful that those who had disassembled the trampoline had left the instructions for me to follow. Because it's one thing to have missing tools or missing materials when you're trying to build something. It's another thing entirely to have all the tools but use them in the wrong way. So you've got everything you need to make something work but it doesn't quite work because you've used something in the wrong way. I had that issue as I put together the trampoline. I had everything I needed, but by the end, I'd realised I'd used some of them the wrong way. There were certain poles facing the wrong way, didn't line up with bolts. I had to pull part of it apart again to... Um, you can't touch the cups. Um, I had to pull part of it again apart so I can make it work. It's not quite what I had in mind, but... <laughs> The cups, yeah, it's not. That's, that works fine. That's fine. We'll, we'll accept that. You guys can take a seat. We will accept that. They did use the tools. They did use the tools that they had. 
um, in a certain sense. Um, but when we think about us as a church, and 1 Corinthians 14 talks extensively about things being done for the building up. Um, and it's, it's sometimes everything that we've been given is enough to accomplish what we need to do, but are we using what we've been given correctly? This will go really badly if I don't even do it properly, but we'll see. Um, but Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 speaks several times. I'd love you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14. And just as I'm, I'm just distracting you in case this doesn't work, just open your Bibles <laughs> and look through there and see if the amount of, it's not going to work because I haven't folded very well, but it does sometimes sit in that sense like that. <laughs> it lasted for as long as it needed to. If you look in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 12, verse 17, verse 26, verse 31, all emphasizes the building up of the church. And Paul has been correcting the Corinthian church and us on the intended person, the intended purpose of why we gather together as a church, why we do this. Why do we even get together on a Sunday morning? Um, the purpose of the gathering, the purpose of the church, not just the church operates on a Sunday morning, it operates far more broadly than that. He's also been correcting their misuse and abuse of spiritual gifts. And he's been doing this so the church can function together, as we've seen, uh, in, in unity, without division. That each one would play their part and to acknowledge that we have what we need, we just use, need to use it correctly. We need to use the materials we have in the right way. So here in chapter 14, I want us to think this morning, especially on uh, the commands that Paul, by the Spirit, is giving here. That we need to pursue love, that we need to strive to excel at what builds up the church. So pursue love, strive to excel at what builds up the church. And to desire what will make the presence of God manifest among us. So firstly, sort of larger portion, verses 1 to 11, and do follow along in your Bibles as we go. The first portion here, this theme of pursuing love. Obviously, last week we had this wonderful chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, that displays this love, this wonderful picture of love. As uh, Steve pointed out for us last week, so much of that was in response to what was not being done right at Corinth. The reason the definition is there for us is that they were doing the opposite. So Paul opens up this chapter, moving out of that, and saying, pursue love. That is the greatest thing you should aim for. Pursue love and earnestly desire the highly higher gifts. And those gifts that we're meant to desire are the ones that will build up the church. This means that in the, the public gathering, as we are this morning, of believers, there'll be a prioritizing of the gifts that are important to make God's presence clear. That those who are gathered can worship freely. That those, um, that those who are gathered maybe that don't know God yet 
that there be acknowledgement, that they're present, they're here, that they're eavesdropping as God's people meet and worship and look at his word. Paul does this, and he says, so, for sheer love, I earnestly desire the high gifts, desire those things that are important to make God's presence known. And he goes on to say the best way to do that is he's going to contrast two of the gifts for us, prophecy and tongues. We're used to comparisons, I suppose, with advertising and that sort of thing. If you think of something you compare with the other, you might already think of a couple of meerkats that talk to you about comparing the market. Um, This is a bit less that. Maybe you think of the other one. Let's compare the pair. Maybe it's a bit more like that in the sense of those ads. You see someone's going up and someone's going down depending on which super fun they've choose. Paul this morning is telling us to compare the pair, but he's not doing that in the sense of this is going to be good for your financial security. So no, this is going to be beneficial for the whole church. What is better? Because there is something that's better. What is the higher thing that we should desire? And more to the point as we're pursuing love, what is the most loving thing? What is the most loving thing to practice in a gathering of believers with unbelievers present? on a Sunday morning? What's the most loving? What's the most efficient way to build the church with what you have? I didn't do it entirely efficiently, but what's the most accurate way you can use what you have to build the church? And Paul says, it's prophecy. It's prophecy. Especially that you may prophesy. Now, Paul, in this passage, as we've already thought about in chapter 12, he's not so much interested in defining prophecy or tongues. Okay? He's very concerned with what they're meant to accomplish. So let's just walk through these verses uh, slowly. But firstly, I just want to think, pursuing love means seeking what's beneficial to all, not just to an individual. That's the first thing to consider, Paul's main point here. Pursuing love means seeking what's beneficial to all, not just to individuals. Because he says in verses 2 to 4, those who speak in tongues speak only to God. And no one understands them. They're just building themselves up. While the one who prophesies, he says, speaks for the building up and encouragement of others. It's not a self-directed exercise. It's a whole body directed exercise or an other directed exercise. Now, just from the start, just as Paul begins to compare these two, prophecy and tongues, we have to keep the context in mind. What Paul has in view here is the gathering of believers, the gathering what we refer to as the church, for lack of a better way of thinking about it, the church on a Sunday morning. Um, So it can't be too quick to say Paul is denigrating tongues all through this passage as he compares the two. Uh, He clearly thinks there is something beneficial about tongues. We see that. He even, in verse 5, will say he wishes all could speak in tongues, but we also know from the end of chapter 12, he says not everybody will, and not everybody has to. There is benefit, but only to the individual, unless there is interpretation. Verse 5 tells us. Prophecy, on the other hand, can be clearly understood. It can build up more than one person. So it is the greater 
is the higher gift we should seek. And seeking what benefits all sometimes means putting aside what I might personally benefit from. For the greater and higher good and to love others, I'm going to put aside what I might personally benefit from to know that this will benefit all. Paul goes on to give some uh, illustrations, I suppose, of what this might sound like, literally. In verses 6 to 11, Paul goes on to say that pursuing love in these matters means you'll strike the right notes at the right time. He gives two illustrations of why, of why speaking in tongues without interpretation uh, is not of benefit to the public worship in the church. first one he gives is of musical instruments in verse 6. Um, he talks about what someone might be doing as they come speaking in tongues, but we don't actually know what they're doing. In verse 7 he says, even lifeless instruments uh, manage to stro- strike the right have to strike the right note. They have to hit the right note so everybody knows the song that's being played. So it can be enjoyed by everyone. Now I know that um, I'm, I'm not proficient in any musical instrument, but, and I'm certainly not proficient in any kind of rhythm. But I think we could understand, that's just the easiest example for me. If we look at the drums, what would it be like who's someone who just has their own rhythm in mind will get on those drums on a Sunday. <laughs> Not like you, you're quite a gifted man. <laughs> what, what would it be like if Nick this morning decided he was going to play to a rhythm of a different song? He was going to play to a tune that he had in his own head. Matt saying he was already doing that, I don't know. <laughs> what would that be like if a drummer only played according to his own beat? We're we're told in 1 Corinthians 13 there is such a thing that happens in the church when we don't love. That's a noisy gong. That's a clanging cymbal. It's just noise. Accomplishes nothing, shares nothing with no one. Making noise for your own benefit is not pursuing love. Similarly, Paul goes on to talk about the bugle. What if the bugle, what if the trumpeter in in a battle, in a midst of a war, what if he doesn't give the right call? What if he doesn't strike the right note? How would anyone on the battlefield know which way they're advancing or where their fellow soldiers were if the wrong note is struck? The wrong note isn't then just miscommunication, it could actually be really dangerous and unsafe. And we're going to see that by the end of this passage. That is what Paul is building to, the wrong note, the right material used in the wrong way is actually really dangerous. Verse 9, Paul goes on to talk about uh, just a bit of reflection. If, you're, if you speak in a way that's unintelligible, a way that can't be understood, not only will no one understand you, but it's actually a pointless thing. It's just like speaking into the air. There's no one to hear it, there's no one to hear it, Sorry, no one to understand it. There's, there's no grasping of it. It's just, it's gone. It's a pointless exercise. He then gives another illustration of known languages, known human languages in verses 10 and 11. There are many different languages. Each language has a meaning. 
But if the hearer doesn't know the meaning, everything will be foreign. Maybe you have travelled to a foreign country and you've had that experience where you don't understand anything. <clears throat> I'd encourage all of you at some point to pop in to the Mandarin congregation. Not just in the sense of having the experience of a foreign language, but of foreign worship in the sense of the foreign language part of it. That also might give us an understanding of how they might feel sitting in this congregation. But picture trying to have a conversation with someone who knows you can't speak their language. Like they know you can't speak their language, but they choose to keep speaking in something they know you, you can't understand. They can speak yours. They could change their language and match yours so you could both understand and be, have a conversation. But instead, they choose to keep speaking in their own language. That would be unloving. So we see that striking this, this right note, this image that, oh, image, sound, whatever that, that Paul is going through, striking the right note is really important. Striking the right note brings pleasure and enjoyment and unity in music and harmony. It brings obedience in battle and safety in battle. It brings clear communication when it's language we're dealing with. And in the church, it builds up. The contrast we can see Paul is giving here is very clear. Um, he's illustrated it. It's very clear. I don't think any of us could deny at this point that he's contrasting these two things. And the contrast is stark. One is a material and a tool, when used rightly, can build up the church. One is a tool and material, when used wrongly, can have great damaging and unloving effects in the church. Those who insist, Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, those who insist on speaking in tongues without interpretation in the public gathering are not pursuing love and they're not building up the church. Because building up requires some form of intelligibility. If you're going to follow instructions to assemble something, there needs to be intelligent instructions. There needs to be able to, be able to follow it. And this specific issue of prophecy versus tongues in this passage, the comparison that Paul is building on is on that issue of is it intelligible? Is it understandable? Can people understand what is being communicated? Let's just stop for a moment and compare um, in our own way about the different gifts we have in view here, the prophecy and tongues. We did a little bit in chapter 12, but let's just focus on these two a little bit here. Reminding ourselves again, Paul's not, intent is not to provide a definition. He's, he's, he's not really giving us a definition here. He's just showing how they should be practiced, uh, their regulation, the boundaries in which they operate, okay? So think of prophecy first. The prophecy could be defined, I'm not saying a definite definition because I don't think we have one, but just as a helpful way of thinking about this, prophecy could be defined as the human report of a divine revelation. Human report of a divine revelation. Uh, one commentator put it this way, Christian prophets are those who have grasped the meaning of scripture 
perceived its powerful relevance to the life of an individual and the church and society and declare that message. So they know the scripture, they know the person they're talking to, and they're in such good communication and relationship with God, they can speak wisely from that platform. We know from both Old Testament and New Testament, the prophets and prophecy we encounter in both, uh, there's, there's different modes of prophecy. There's a foretelling. There's a saying, this is what is going to happen, this is what God has declared will come in the future. There's sometimes a retelling. This is what God has said, and this is what you should do in light of what God has said. There's a lot of what the prophecy and prophets in the Old Testament speak to. They were enforcing what God had already said. Other instances we have in scripture of prophecy is where a person with a personal word or insight into a particular moment of time. We have that as well. Prophecy must absolutely contain truth. It must be true. Um, It seems like a fairly obvious thing to say, but I think it's just really important just to note that. It must come true. We had examples of that this morning, I believe. Josh heard words of prophecy in his life. What proved it came from God was truth. It came true. I've had similar moments in my life where those sorts of things have been spoken to me, either from God's word or from someone I know who's been in deep prayer for myself, and they've shared something. It has come true. It has been true. I've also had instances where people said, I have a word for you. Just a note, that automatically puts me on edge sometimes. Not in the sense of, not because I don't believe you do, because I've also had moments where it hasn't been true. It's actually been quite damaging and hurtful and harmful. So prophecy must contain truth. But the thing we have to note as we'll see that these things have to be weighed. We'll see verses we haven't read we'll get to in a couple of weeks' time. Verse 29 and 32 talk about in the church as this is happening, There's those that weigh up what is being said, especially when it comes to those that are speaking the words of the Lord, speaking prophecy. Because without weighing and without discerning, prophecy will just become completely subjective, even abusive. The Lord has said to me that you need to do this. Sometimes that does happen. Sometimes. But we need to be really careful in using that phrase Perhaps a better way of saying, I believe the Lord has shared with me that you need to hear this. That might be a better way of saying, if you feel so strongly that God has imprinted something on your heart, don't put the authority on yourself. Um, Make sure you make sure it's clear. I have a strong impression that God has this message for you. Weighing prophecy, we'll see as well, is done by other prophets. Verse 32 tells us that. And more specifically in domain of the weighing of the prophets and who gets to talk about uh, what is false and what is true, we see from the rest of Paul's writings and other um, New Testament writings, that is a specific, um, I suppose, responsibility appointed to the authority and the elders, especially the church and the leaders of the church. We know that from 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
I'll talk a bit more about that in a couple of weeks as well. And there's a weighing, and that weighing comes with the authority of those who lead in the church. What do we do know from this passage, especially about prophecy, I think is the most important thing, verse 24 and 25. Whatever else we know about prophecy, whatever else we would be comfortable to say is yes or no about prophecy and how it works, the outcome for Paul is this is what it should be the outcome. Verse 24, 25. But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, is he convicted by all, he's called a counselor by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he'll worship God and declare God is really among you. Prophecy, whatever else it is, prophecy speaks truth to the heart. It is gospel focused. It's revealing sin. It's calling for faith in and worship of God. Prophecy speaks truth to the heart. Sin is gonna be revealed. The need for God is gonna be revealed. The need for faith in God and turning to him is gonna be on display. Tongues could be defined as, and I say could be defined as, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, there is contention and debate on these sorts of things, and I acknowledge that. But tongues could be defined as the God-given ability to speak a language you do not know. Uh, So either that the gospel is made clear to others who would not otherwise know it through miraculous means, just as... Uh, happened in Acts chapter 2, the first uh, proclamation of the gospel that went out and people heard it in their own language. And I've personally heard of antidotal, antidotal, however you say that word, uh, stories of where that still happens in different places in the word, in the world. People who do not know one another's language being able to explain the gospel somehow, miraculously, to someone who has not heard it before. That is one of the ways tongues could be defined. We see in this chapter, though, there's also a broader scope to tongues. Uh, They can also be used to glorify praise or pray to God in private or to build up the church if accompanied with interpretation. We know, as we've already said, but I think it's really worth stating again from the end of chapter 12, we know that Uh, Tongues are given to some and not to all. We know that. We know that those who speak in unknown tongues, from verse 2, are primarily speaking to God, not to man. Which indicates Paul is saying there's a kind of speech that is just between individual and God, not necessarily in human language. Other Instances through here and the next section through from verse 13, clearly talk of Paul speaking with his mind, speaking with his spirit, praying in his spirit. There's clearly a language that Paul says can be used as private prayer and worship that God gives to someone between them and God. We learn from 20, verse 27 and 28, chapter 14, that if there is the public speaking of tongues, we've already heard it a couple of times, but he makes it really clear again in a few verses' time. If there is the speaking of tongues in the public gathering, whenever anyone does speak in tongues, they are quiet and silent until there's an interpretation. 
They're also uh, complete control and conscious of what they're doing because there's clearly a self-control aspect here because they're taking in turns. It's also clear, again, interpretation must be given or there's to be silence. Summary of that, I suppose, is Paul's issue is not with the gift of tongues in itself. Verse 18, he himself speaks in tongues. His issue is not with the gift in itself. His issue is with its use. Is it being done wrongly? Is it being done in a selfish way? Is it being done in a self-indulgent way? And it's clear that this is a gift the Corinthians were misusing. Much like we may see in many churches and even denominations today. This is a gift that can be misused and even misrepresented as a gift when it's not. Tongues, if they are to be practiced in public, are done in order and with interpretation. That is the biblical model we have. Now, I can think of multiple personal experiences and examples of the misuse of tongues. Um, but that doesn't mean I am entitled to dismiss it in its entirety. I can't. Scripture tells me not to. In verse 39 of chapter 14, do not forbid speaking in tongues. So I can't. But what Scripture does instruct is that it has a right place in practiced in the right way. And I know it's of personal benefit to many that I know that do have that gift. Now I'm not at all negating that. I think it's a genuine thing that many people I know and love have. Are we going to start practicing this gift in this church anytime soon? No. Again, not, as I said a couple of weeks ago, not because we want to limit the Spirit's power. Not because we want to expressly go against what Paul says here and forbidding it. But because this gift has very specific regulations to it. This whole chapter gives us regulations and boundaries to it. And unless those regulations and biblical commands are followed, it cannot be practiced. And it can't be done, especially with love and to building up of the church. So if we're to pursue love, then we're also to pursue love in the direction that strives. We're going to strive at something together. We're going to love together. We're going to strive to excel at building up the church. And verse 12 to 19 goes on to talk about that. Paul says, if you're, since you are eager... Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. What do we most want to excel at? What's your greatest passion? Some of us want to excel in our career. Some of us want to excel in our workplace or, or study or even just in our relationships. We want to do well. We want to excel in these things. If I was going to answer in a politically correct way about what I strive to excel at, I suppose I strive to excel at being a good husband and a good father. That's the proper upfront answer to give. 
strive to be a good servant in the church. If you looked at how I practice my life, though, in the moments I have free, which is often a good telling point of what we're striving to excel at and what we're passionate about, what we love most, if you were to look at my, me in the, the moments I have to myself, what do I strive to excel at? Or strive at excelling to entertain myself. To get through a certain amount of books in a year. That's what I'm striving to excel at. To watch that certain TV show in a certain amount of time. Because I know someone in a couple of weeks is going to ask me about it. I strive to watch that movie because everyone's talking about. That's what I do in my moments I have to myself. That's where I seem to really strive to excel. What we spend our time doing, especially the quiet time, the quiet moments, reveals what our passions are. What do you think about the most? What do you think about as you come to church especially? In church, Paul says, it's far better to strive to excel at the things that build up the whole church. Be passionate about what will make the church grow and make God's presence clear. That means if we do have a gift, and he's still in the same context, we're talking about tongues. If we do have a gift, seek its pairing. So if you're earnestly desiring these things, seek what goes with it. The one who speaks in the tongue should pray that he should be able to interpret. It's clear that if God gives us something, it belongs with what will bring the most fruit. If God gives us something, it belongs with the thing that will bring us the most fruit. There's an obviously application here that is not just for those who speak in tongues. I think this also goes... Um, to others of us who might speak too much in general, which I am. This goes to some of us who might want the chairs and the carpet a different colour. This might go to some of us who want the band to be quieter or louder. While not thinking about what would be beneficial to all. Those of us who have 10,000 words of a theological debate or contention to talk through, but not five words of encouragement. People like myself even, who speak too much Christianese, a bit too much jargon. And don't stop to think of, is that intelligible for someone listening? Is it something someone from outside can understand? What do we do sometimes that makes people outside think we're out of our minds? And sometimes that's a good thing. But what do we do to make the gospel clear? Because there's something in the context of a gathered congregation as well, where we're gathering to worship a one and great and holy God, to declare what his son has done, to share the good news of the gospel that we also desperately believe in. But we leave some things unexplained or inaccessible because of the way we've spoken about them or the way we've acted. Lastly, the last few verses. There's a lot packed in here as well. We need to desire what will make God's presence known. What will make God's presence known? 
the answer to our wrong striving, our wrong excelling, is what is described in verse 24 and 25, uh, this wonderful thing that happens where those who are outside of the faith, those who are unbelievers, come into church and confess their sins and praise God. Paul says in verse 20, not only what we're passionate about reveals our hearts, he says something, it says something of our maturity as well. So don't, don't be children in the way you think of these things. There's something immature about wanting things our way all the time. It's actually really dangerous to push a personal agenda when God has set in place how the church should operate and what will be beneficial to all. Paul in verse 21 quotes from Isaiah 28. And this is uh, quoted in the context of judgment for God's people. Ignoring God's clear direction and command from the prophets as it was given to them brought judgment on God's people that they heard, so they didn't listen to the prophets, then God said, you're gonna hear from the lips of foreigners and even then you won't hear, you won't listen. They'd not listened to God, and so they'd be spoken to in judgment by unknown languages. What's Paul meaning here? Because there's a bit of a seeming contradiction when he says in verse 22 about uh, tongues being a sign for belie- not for believers but unbelievers. Then verse 24, he turns around and says, but prophecy is what will make the gospel clear. Remember, the context of Isaiah was judgment. And I think... One commentator said this, and I just want to make this clear, even though I'm pushing my time again this morning, sorry. I think this has to be really clear. Paul is talking about the sign of judgment. He's saying the experience of being spoken to in languages that do not, you do not understand serves to emphasize a distance from God, as it did for Israel. It creates a sense of alienation in the hearer, in contrast to prophecy, which emphasizes how present God is. In God's economy, an unintelligible message leads to judgment, and a simple and clear message leads to salvation. The things we do, the things we say, have to be clear. It's truly wonderful to think there might even be some among us this morning who are outside the faith, who don't yet, may not have yet believed in Jesus and they find something attractive about the church and they come to it because of that, and that's wonderful, that's God's grace at work. And maybe this morning even there's been a sense of, okay, I've heard truth, I've heard what Josh has shared, I've heard the singing, I've heard even that I need to fall on my face and worship God because my heart's been revealed to be sinful. Maybe that's you, and that would be wonderful if this morning you did put your faith in Jesus and confess those things. Talk to someone if that's you. But for us who are believers, we've come, uh, we really need to come to this, this gathering, this worship service with right hearts and motives, not with a checklist of what we want to see on display, 
but with hearts ready to meet with God and with one another. That means accepting others might need to be built up and that I might put some of my preferences aside. And if I have gifts, I'm going to seek to get alongside someone who I can pair that gifting with. And I'll pursue love in all those things. It means we take some time to think about what it's like for those who are outside and maybe don't yet believe in Jesus. What would it take for them to declare God's presence is truly among us? The first step, I think, in making God's presence clear among us is declaring that he has been present. He became mortal, he walked with us. It wasn't just an abstract, he's here. No, he, he was really, really here. He put on flesh and walked among us. He died for us. And God with us, that message of the gospel that God came down and became one of us, that's intrinsic to what we have to share, there's a power in that. And if we lived like that was true, I believe we could have people here declare, surely God is among you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are among us. There's no sense in which we could escape from your presence in many ways. But as we gather as your people, we are promised that you'll be in the midst. Lord, as a church, we ask that we would seek to use what you've given us in the right ways. That we would build one another up. That we'd make your presence clear. That we wouldn't put things in the way of that. Give us great wisdom and discernment to maybe recognise where we have done that. And Lord, give us again a feeling of your love and your grace. That we would pursue that. That we pursue love of one another and love of you. That we'd strive for the things that will make your presence clear. Lord, thank you for your patience with us when we get it wrong. And thank you for your enduring promise that you will be with us always even to the end of the age. In the name of your Son, in reliance on you and the power of your Spirit, we say Amen.